0: hello everybody welcome to the latest and greatest episode of inside the hexagon I am your host Phil Landides alongside me is my co-host as always Josh Molina Josh how you doing man
1: I'm doing great Phil thanks for having me again to go over this really cool show today
0: yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to this I, I think it's going to be a good one we're going to be talking about triple threat uh today but before we get into that as always we want to go through kind of the fallout of the the last uh strike force event before the one we're talking about. On this week's episode, which was Tank versus Buentello, that took place again in Fresno, uh, California, just a few months before um, this event. Uh, we had seen on that event Jason Von Flew make his Strike Force debut. He beat Eric Ray via arm triangle submission in the second round. Uh, he would come back for this event that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, also, on the card future UFC heavyweight champion Kane Velasquez would also make his Strike Force debut, beating the overmatch Jesse Fujarczyk in a first round TKO. In just under two minutes. Unfortunately for the promotion, this would be Kane's only fight under the Strike Force banner. And I did did want to mention there, and Josh, you know, feel free to kind of jump in here, but, you know, kind of, I really wonder how. Um, the the future of Strike Force or um, the UFC would have differed if Kane had stayed uh, with Strike Force. I mean, obviously, we don't know what went on behind the scenes. He did have one more fight outside of the UFC before going over to that promotion. So he did yeah. fight away from Strike Force. But, you know, we, we really talked about you know we really talked kane up in the last uh event episode as somebody that you know is a real game changer and um you know somebody that could have really been a cornerstone for them so i just i kind of wonder you know kind of just conjecture but wonder how different things might look uh if they would look different at all if kane is enough of a difference maker to have you know maybe strike force would would have gone longer or you know whatever it was i mean the the heavyweight division until the Grand Prix was never like their, you know, signature division. It was they, they really had more of the middleweight, you know, welterweight, lightweight fights that were really what they were known for. But, um, yeah. but Kane, you know, who knows? I mean, that, that would have been really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's not surprising that they plucked Kane out because he had such a decorated... Amateur background and then he's this big guy in MMA and he's very intimidating and imposing So I could see why the UFC would want to get him at that time. It probably was a better move I mean you just never know but as you mentioned it wasn't really until that Grand Prix that strike force started to really focus on the heavyweights beyond sort of like a novelty fight and I always felt as though Cain Velasquez was the kind of fighter who rose to the occasion he, he fought at the level of the guy he was fighting and I don't know if he would have had the competition in Strike Force to be able to rise to that level without some of those guys. Now if they were able to book a Fedor Velasquez fight or something like that, that would have been pretty impressive but I feel as though Cain probably did better by going to the UFC. I don't know who they would have had him fighting, you know, uh, or Andre Orlovsky or somebody like that, you know, Josh Barnett. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting to think, and there's so much of that in MMA, if this guy would have stayed or if that guy would have went or, you know, the whole birth of Ronda Rousey starting in Strike Force. It's just, there's so many of those those questions. But I think Kane had to be in UFC for him to be the big star that he was because he needed that big brand and that promotion and he needed those quality fighters right out of the gate to go up against.
0: Uh, I, honestly, I think you kind of answered it there when you said that, um, you know, who would they have matched him against? I mean, they didn't really have a heavyweight division. So, yeah. Uh, you know, you put him with Paul Wentello and well, who else? You know, after that, so that's that's right. a that's a that's a good point. So, all right. Well, moving along, uh, Josh Thompson would get back in the win column with a guillotine choke submission over Dwayne Bang Ludwig. Both these guys. Uh, would be on triple threat so we'll be talking about both of them today and finally the headhunter paul bointello knocked out ufc legend tank abbott uh, in the main event very quick first round win really established him as the strike force heavyweight to watch at this point again not really much of a division so not a whole lot of other options uh but but you know somebody that it was a big win for him and then tank for his part was was one and done with strike force and as you'll see as we go through uh today's event um, there are <laughs> a lot of one and done fighters, guys that just came in for one fight with Strike Force and never appeared inside the hexagon again. Uh, no pun intended. Alright. Uh, discussing the fight announcements, let's talk about uh, who was revealed uh, to be on the card ahead of Triple Threat on Halloween 2006. There were several fights announced uh, for Triple Threat, including the what was supposed to be the main event of, Bo- of Bobby Southworth colliding with UFC and Pride veteran Vernon the Tiger White for the inaugural Strike Force Light Heavyweight Championship. Uh, in the press release announcement, Southworth's time on The Ultimate Fighter was spotlighted, uh, trying to obviously trying to capitalize on his notoriety from the show uh, where he really made a name for himself as, as a bit of a bully uh, especially with with Chris Lieben. Um, not, not yeah I mean regardless of how you felt about him he he definitely made his mark uh, on the Ultimate Fighter.
1: Yeah, we didn't really talk about this last time we talked about Bobby Southworth, but on The Ultimate Fighter, he has this sort of legendary episode where he's trying to cut weight in order to make a fight. And it's a really compelling vision um, visual for what fighters have to go through. Obviously, fighters have to cut weight all the time and... People are familiar with that process in the sense of they know that it's tough and it's it's brutal. It can be really awful, but this one was dramatized on the reality show, so he got a lot of attention. That show was you know kind of their breakthrough uh, season for the for the UFC or that show really really helped launch them. And so this really captured. Southworth had to cut something like twenty two pounds in twenty four hours. And that is just brutal. So there's images of Josh Koschek, Chuck Lydell, basically dragging him into the sauna, Lydell laying on the door, not letting him out. And it's kind of sad. And it sort of makes you think about the whole weight cutting issue in mma because this guy i mean he looked like he was gonna die i mean he was so out of it and you can find this probably in a million places um you know uh, in the ultimate fighter archives and on youtube of course but i mean he, he's just he's done he's sweating he's trying to lose weight many times he wants to quit but he's sort of like a guy who really brought that weight cutting issue out and then of course what happened he well actually before that they went to uh, his opponent, Lodun Sincade and asked, hey, do you want to spot this guy at four pounds? They didn't think he was going to be able to cut the four pounds at the very end in the last couple hours. And he said, no, they wouldn't do that for us. So he was back to the sauna for Southworth. And he, he he weighed in, and he he made weight. I think he was like one pound uh, over, which is totally allowable. And uh, surprisingly, you know, he drank a bunch of water and vitamins and rehydrated Right afterward, and uh, he ended up knocking out Sincade in the second round. But that's sort of an interesting thing because when we talk about Southworth being on, being on this show, people were familiar with him if they're watching the whole world of MMA and if they had watched that that season of the Ultimate Fighter. So I know that it's kind of interesting. Interestingly, left that guy he fought uh, passed away um, um, recently. So um, Southworth was part of that. That class of Koscheck and uh, Chris Le- Levin and just sort of those guys who really got a lot of attention on that television show. Did you see, Have you seen that episode where he cut the weight
0: film? Yeah, actually, I did watch this episode. This was one of the few seasons of The Ultimate Fighter that I actually watched uh, in its entirety. Um, it was really enjoyable season and lots of ups and downs southworth was definitely not one of my favorite guys um Mm -hmm. and and you know reality tv is edited in a certain way to you know make heroes and villains because that's what we like and that's what we're used to um we actually we're having bobby on the show next week Uh, And we're going to discuss his time on The Ultimate Fighter and uh, we, you know, we touch on his weight cut and all that stuff. But regardless of how you feel about Bobby, I mean, just, you know, and a lot of credit due to Koschek and and Liddell. And, you know, I mean, you got to give them a lot of credit, too, because they (laughs) made him stay in there. But 22 pounds in 24 hours is is pretty insane. And you got to give it to him for, you know, for sticking with it. And especially being he's 34 or 35 when they're filming this. I mean, he's not a kid. So oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, so pretty pretty tough. Um, all right, let's jump back into to the strike force fight that we're gonna discuss here. So Vernon White, uh, longtime MMA veteran, he'd fought in both the UFC and Pride, as we'd mentioned, uh, an early training partner of Ken Shamrock at the Lions End, which was at one point one of the the preeminent uh, MMA gyms out there uh, the tiger had fought a lot of tough guys in his career including current new japan pro wrestling star minero suzuki uh i don't know if fans if you you got to be a pretty hardcore fan to know who suzuki is but if you follow new japan wrest or uh, japan wrestling at all you know who this is and he is insane um so that's kind of a kind of a a, a big deal uh also he's, fought still, Mas- he's still going Sorry. to
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: He's he's one of their top stars. So, I mean, he's he's got to be near 50, but he's one of their (laughs) one of their top guys and, and just as crazy as as ever. Uh, Masakatsu Funaki was another uh, multi-time opponent of his. Boss Rutin, Frank Shamrock, Pedro Hizo, uh, Kazushi Sakuraba, one of my favorites of all time, Jeremy Horn, uh, and Chuck Liddell. Uh, and, and the press release really kind of played a, a potential feud between the two, linking White to Ken Shamrock, of course, and Southworth to Frank Shamrock, uh, who Frank had been a part of uh, American kickboxing Academy. Uh, and, and so, you know, South, that's where Southworth had started the, their Brazilian jiu-jitsu program there. So, you know, kind of playing up those two and, you know, this was a feud at that time between Ken and Frank, um, you know, adopted brothers and, and all that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, they were trying to kind of play up the local ties and, uh, trying to, uh, to, to make a, a big deal out of that in order to sell tickets.
1: It's interesting that, I mean, you mentioned Frank Shamrock, so it just made me sort of think about how, he was such a big part of that first show. And now we've seen Kung Lee fight with this show a couple of times. Uh, Josh Thompson. We saw Gilbert Melendez one time. And Frank is has not fought yet again. And around this time, there's talk about him going and fighting uh, for um, Elite XC and fighting Henzo Gracie. And, of course, that was that... that um, terrible fight i think where you got
0: disqualified but yeah the repeated I, I, knees to the head on the ground if, if i remember correctly
1: right right and so it's just it's i it's curious to me how we had started with frank as sort of being the face of strike force at their big debut show and now he's sort of flirting with the elite XC on showtime i mean eventually they would develop this partnership of course and it would benefit strike force greatly but i think that it's interesting that shamrock at this time is kind of taking his eyes off the strike force promotion and angling and he eventually you know they would fight and i think it was like february of the next year so that was all just very curious to me as to you know it's part of also why we're seeing smaller houses at these shows because frank's off you know he's helping out and he's doing things with strike force but he's fighting somewhere else for a while
0: yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, you know, obviously don't know the terms of Frank's contract, but yeah. you know, it's not shocking to me cause, um, you know, elite XC probably came to him and offered him a lot of money and, and Coker has always been very fighter friendly. So I'm not, I'm really not shocked by that. He's never had an issue sharing and all that. So, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time it, it is, you know, surprising that that he'd let him go to a national promotion, uh, and, <laughs> and go off there. So interesting point. Um, I, I will say this, this, White, uh, you know, Vernon White, Bobby Southworth pairing, I, I, you know, interesting booking to to mm-hmm. be honest, not, not really one I'm a fan of. I mean, White is a local guy. He's from Palo Alto, had a bit of a name, but I mean, he didn't even have a winning record coming into the bout. He was 24 and 28, uh, including two straight losses. Southworth Southworth was coming off the nightmare of the, the cage door coming open during his last bout uh, at, uh, at you know at Revenge, which is covered in the archives, and, and a you know a loss in the UFC before that. Not exactly two guys that I would pick at that time to vie for my first light heavyweight title, especially when you know you've got Chuck Liddell over in the UFC as their weight class you know standard bearer um, for for you know light heavyweight division, and, and you're saying my guy is either Vernon White, who had already been beaten by Liddell pretty badly. Or you know Bobby Southworth. I mean, just it's this is where I do question um, the booking sometimes, as, yeah. as far as you know, Coker's matchmaking, and and there's a couple other kind of head scratchers on this card that we'll, we'll we'll get to. But but yeah, just not a big fan of of this this pairing here, and especially if it's supposed to be the main event.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, Strikeforce would emerge and become this really strong promotion known nationally, but they had a few glitches along the way. A couple of questionable cards in uh, matches in prominent spots on cards, and this being one of them. And I think it just goes to that. Uh, tendency that a lot of promoters have, even somebody as talented as Scott Coker, to sort of use those well-branded names to sort of draw eyeballs to the younger stars. It's a good strategy, as long as you can sort of do it sparingly and you hope that when you do that, those fights are good fights, not boring fights like this one turned out to be. So, I mean, I don't... Daniel Pewter is a big mystery to me. We'll talk about him later, but... I don't know why they didn't try to build the promotion around him just because he had so many things going. Obviously, Kung Lee, um, you know, he, he was a big deal. And uh, on this card, one of the triple threat matches. So, um, you know, they kind of hit it off there. Josh Thompson was not as, he didn't possess that knockout boom power that some of the other guys did. But, I mean, they had guys to play with. And I think they just probably clinged a little bit to these guys with the UFC name a little too much at times.
0: Yeah, def- definitely some misses, and and of course we're gonna you know we're gonna point those out as we go. Yeah. Um, also announced uh, in this press release uh, were appearances from Kung Lee, Gilbert Melendez, Josh the Punk Thompson, and Daniel Pewter, three of which you just mentioned.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, on November fourth, uh, Jason Von Flew was revealed as Kung's opponent for Triple Threat. Uh, Von Flew, as Bobby Southworth did, had some name value from the Ultimate Fighter. He would definitely be a big step up in competition for for Lee. I mean, you're going from um, you know Mike Altman and Brian Warren. I mean Brian Warren had a lot of a lot of experience, but uh, you know you could definitely make a case for Von Flue being uh, a better fighter. And uh, you know that, that this was definitely going to be a, a big uh, a big opportunity for Kung Lee, and and with a lot of risk attached to it. Uh, then ten days later, on November fourteenth, Tony the Freak Frickland was announced as the opponent uh, for Dwayne Bang Ludwig. This would be uh, Ludwig's MMA debut at one hundred and seventy pounds. Uh, and well, not, you know, obviously not his MMA debut, you know, as far as his first fight, but his first fight at 170 pounds. Yeah. Uh, and he remarked in a press release that he was feeling really good and confident. Uh, Fricklin was a Boston native. He was formerly a part of Pat Miletich's team, which included reigning UFC champs Matt Hughes and Tim Sylvie at the time. He was a four-time UFC vet, and he had a pretty busy 2006 going 4-1 and one in five bouts uh, with his only loss coming to future UFC middleweight kingpin Anderson Silva. Uh, interestingly, Fricklin would actually fight three days after this announcement was made, which is kind of a callback to Clay Guida uh, with the Shamrock vs. Gracie card where he was announced as having a certain record and then actually lost after the announcement was, was made. (laughs) Same situation here. Uh, Thomas Wildman Denny uh, beat uh, Frickland in a a regional California bout, so kind of Kind Of interesting there, and I'll also mention with uh, with Frickland. Uh, I remember one of his UFC fights, and in, in particular, he fought a guy named Ivan Salivari, uh, who, if I remember right, had very interesting tattoo of like eagles' wings on his side for some reason. I think it was on his back for some reason that, that sticks out in my mind. But uh, <laughs> Salivari actually got Frickland in a body lock, like a triangle body lock, where uh, Frickland was on his stomach. And and Salavari had his leg underneath him, and then triangled his his midsection, and uh, Fricklin hurt his back and actually tapped out, which I've never seen before and have never seen since, which was wow. which is really interesting for what you know just it sticks out in my mind because it's just such a unique submission, mm-hmm. um, and but anyways I digress back back to the uh, the press release it also announced that Fricklin's addition to the card. Um, on top of that, Josh Thompson would be taking on 23-year-old Nam Phan, uh, and that he also, in addition, Eugene Jackson would return to Strike Force and be taking on Ronald the Machine Gun Jun uh, really? in a, a rematch of a previous bout, which we will we will discuss shortly. All right, and then just uh, th- just three days before the event, it was announced that Gina Carano would be taking on Elena Maxwell in the first ever uh... women's bout in strike force and this would actually be a rematch of a previous k-1 kickboxing bout which Carano won via unanimous decision. Uh, that was that was actually Maxwell's only loss in kickboxing at that point. She was 17-1 and one in that sport, while Carano was 12-2-1. Uh, Corano definitely being pushed as a star here, uh, but but Maxwell was also getting some attention. She was a, a protege of Kung Lee. She was transitioning full-time uh, to N- MMA. And then I also learned, I did not know this before, but Carano is the daughter of Glenn Carano, who was a former backup quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, he played seven years at... Uh, 36 games with America's team. And, you know, again, didn't really know that before, but both fighters were getting, you know, getting some attention here. And, and this was obviously going to be a big deal. It's one of the
1: cool things about Strike Force and its history is that Strike Force and Scott Coker put women's MMA on display long before Dana White ever did. And if you can recall, there's plenty of interviews out there where Dana White says, we will never have women's MMA. Absolutely.
0: 100% against it. 100%.
1: And and, um, Gina Carano, you know, debuts and it's, it's a big deal. And for a lot of reasons, you know, she was at the time, of course, nobody saw Ronda Rousey coming, but at the time she was supposed to be that, that big crossover star, what Ronda would eventually become. Uh, But, Corano deserves her place, and we'll talk about that more. Uh, certainly, you know, down the road, she had that amazing fight with uh, with Cyborg. But she deserves her place as somebody who knocked down doors and helped make uh, people pay attention to women's MMA in a way that they never would have had it been, um, you know, any number of other, um, you know, great athletes who who compete. And she was able to turn those heads. She had sort of those movie star looks and uh, she had the fact that she she had a professional athlete um, connection, obviously, um, that helped her. She was well-trained in Muay Thai and she was... Uh, you know, she was a talented, talented fighter. Uh, so I think people, when they think about women's MMA, they think about Ronda Rousey, but you got to look back, you know, she was sort of the superstar Billy Graham before Ronda became the Hulk Hogan. I mean, Hulk Hogan took superstars gimmick and made it, you know, into what it was in this national thing. And, uh, Ronda, Ronda didn't really steal Gina's gimmick, but she definitely, um, took what Gina started and blew it up into something nobody could have ever imagined. You know, she, Rhonda of course would become the biggest star in, in MMA. So this was a significant thing and they were definitely pushing Gina Carano to be the next big thing. And well, it was until she met Cyborg.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, you make some really good points there. I mean, if you're going to say, you know, who's kind of the Mount Rushmore, not necessarily for, all the fights they won, but just for their influence, you know, as far as who got women's MMA going, um, Mm -hmm. as a, you know, as a a very viable part of the business, you know, of the sport of, of MMA, uh, you know, I think you'd have to put Gina, you'd think you'd have to put cyborg. I think you have to put Rhonda, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Misha Tate, if not, you know, I mean, Amanda Nunez is, is the, the king now or the queen Mm -hmm. now, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's one of those things where I, I you know she always has her place in MMA history. I think that's secure, and you know this is where it got started. And we'll we'll discuss her more um, as we as we you know move along. But yeah, this was definitely going to be a big deal. Um, also in that press release, Gilbert Melendez no longer being mentioned, and it appeared that he had been dropped from the card. Um, so, but it looked like it was a pretty good reason, which we'll discuss momentarily. Uh, also, six five three hundred pound San Jose Cyber, SaberCats lineman Rick, Rex Richards would make his strike force debut against another behemoth in six eight two hundred ninety pound Kyle Leviton. Uh, for those that aren't aware, the San Jose SaberCats were an Arena Football League team. Josh, did you ever go to an Arena Football League game? Were there any uh, any teams near you? Uh, I got to War. go to a couple, and they were a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I never went in uh, San Jose, but I did go to uh, a couple of games in L.A. And uh, they're they're so fun because they're so interactive. And you can see football on a basketball-sized uh, court, and uh, it's right there in the action. And, you know, a, a 30-yard pass leads to a touchdown, you know, a catch and a run because it's like, you know, 50 yards. So, um, yeah, that was, re- that was really cool. I took my son a couple of times, and, you know, I, it's just – the, it was very interactive you can catch a football they throw footballs out there or incomplete pass might might bounce up there for sure I'm surprised Vince McMahon didn't try to do arena SFL because <laughs> he could have probably did great because you know if you get 20,000 people into a big NFL stadium you put that in arena Football League you know you're sold out yeah that's, <laughs> that's a good point
0: yeah um, also, uh, in late November, Kung Lee gave an interview to MMA Weekly that had some some pretty interesting nuggets in it. Uh, during the interview, he said that he'd been shooting a new movie and that the uh, felt like he'd probably upset the director because he'd refused to go back to Russia to finish filming because he needed to prep for for his fight with uh, with Jason Von Flu, Not usually something you hear from a lot of a lot of MMA fighters.
1: Yeah, well, Kung Lee was definitely focused on fighting. I mean, he was somebody who did not get distracting. It's too bad. Um, if I were a Hollywood producer and I had been familiar with Kung Lee, I'd have figured out a way to sign that guy to like a series of big time mainstream movies because he had action star written all over him. He fought sort of like a uh, a movie style uh, kickboxer, but he did it for real. And uh, that was something that they could have capitalized on. Of course, he had a good career and it, he still does some acting. He had that, he was martial law in that Tekken film, uh, but he never quite broke through. And I remember when I interviewed him thinking, my goodness, this guy has got Hollywood written all over him because he's kind of the total package. He could have done that. But I also remember I think it was 2008 when I talked to him before the Frank Shamrock fight he's a big family man. I mean, he he definitely wanted to put his family first. And so that might've played into it, but it's, it it made me sort of think when I was sort of doing the research for this about what Kung Lee could have been, um, in Hollywood, just because he, he could have been a, a, a real sort of just karate style movie star hero kind of guy. And, and then I started to think about who are the big UFC, MMA guys, force guys who made it big into the mainstream. It, like Mike Tyson. Right? Everybody's talking about Mike Tyson. 57, and he's going to go out there and box Roy Jones Jr. in a fight that I definitely do not want to see. But, I mean, he's still right there. I mean, he's a guy who's boxed in 20 years. And we didn't really have that. You know, I feel the same way about... John Jones like John Jones is literally the baddest man on the planet nobody can beat him like he's never lost and yet he's not he doesn't have any sort of like mainstream Hollywood presence so I don't know Phil like if you've ever thought about that like if who are the UFC guys that that could have crossed over and been sort of that mainstream thing of course John Jones has his own host of personal problems that probably prevented him but i don't know it's just sort of interesting to me i mean you got like john cena who's like a big movie star you got the rock who's a movie star even batista you know got you know a a role in a in a big movie series i won't mention triple h or big shots but i mean do you know what i mean like did we ever get any big mma fighters who became big time hollywood stars
0: no, I mean, there's there's definitely guys that have had you know roles. I mean, the uh, what was it? The Dean of Mean, um, Keith Jardine. I mean, he had a couple pretty big roles, and you know, <laughs> yeah. Kung's had a lot of a lot of roles, and he's still yeah. acting now, of course. And um, you know, there's you know, there's been here comes the boom, and had Boss Rootin. and you know, there's there's been guys that have you know dabbled in it and done some things in it no one's completely crossed over and done as well as any of the wrestling stars that you uh that you mentioned uh you know i will say john jones is still only what 33 34 so you know and who he doesn't strike me as a guy that's going to fight for another 15 years so there's still i mean he's a good looking guy he's well-spoken he's charismatic i mean i think he's got a lot of potential for that if he wants to do that but he he may simply not want to do it i mean who you know (laughs) Who really knows? But there's still a lot of time on that clock. So it's nothing I'm it's nothing I'm stressing over anyways. But, uh, you know, there's still I think that story is still yet to be written. So so we'll see what happens. Uh, but Kong also in that interview mentioned that he turned Five Fighters Pro through his USH team, which was under the American Kickboxing Academy banner. Uh, two of those were Elena Maxwell and Anthony Figueroa, who were both on this card. I will mention Figueroa specifically. Uh, he actually he has a, a gym. I don't know if he still does. I assume he does. Uh, but he's got an USH-like satellite gym. Uh, in Gilroy, California, where I used to live. And I actually went to that gym a few times and did some training there. I made a deal with them where I would do PR mm-hmm. for the gym in exchange for not having to pay to train. And, uh, you know, so we we had a bit of a relationship there. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Figueroa a little bit more. Uh, Lee also revealed that he had almost fought on a pride card that year, but that Phil Baroni had gone instead. Uh, and then lastly, I never realized this, or if I did, I forgot about it, but Josh Koscheck, Koscheck and Mike Swick were actually two of Kung's students. Uh, yeah. at this time, which I, I was not aware of. So yeah. interesting, uh, interesting crossover there. All right. And then two days before the event that the finalized card was announced, the only major change was that Paul Buentillo, who had been, uh, been rumored to be facing James, the Colossus Thompson would instead face Warpath. Uh, you know, I, this would be a, a very interesting, uh, fight, not one that I would necessarily, uh, have expected to be as interesting as maybe buentello versus thompson would have been uh, i don't know if that rings a that name rings a bell but thompson was known yeah. for very very intimidating look um very big muscular guy he had some some fights in pride fighting championships in fact uh instead of uh fighting buentello at on this bout he would end up uh beating former olympic gold medalist hidehiko yoshida via TKO due to punches at Pride Shockwave 2006 uh, uh, on New Year's Eve, which is just a few weeks after this this fight, which we're going to talk about that card in just a minute. Uh, Thompson would eventually go on to lose to Kimbo Slice in Elite XC in 2008 in a fight where Thompson's cauliflower ear burst open during the fight, one of the absolute most disgusting things that I think you'll ever see in MMA. Do you, do you remember that?
1: Oh, man, that, that was really bad. Yeah. Um... That was on CBS or Showtime. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember if yep. it was. It was one of those two networks. I want to say it
0: was CBS because it was because yeah. it was Kimbo. I want to say it was CBS, but it was a big, big deal.
1: Yeah, no, I remember that. It must have been CBS because Kimbo was like a huge television star um, at that time. But you know, that was disgusting. That was gross, especially on um, Thompson's <laughs> head and face. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I was just gonna, you know. That was definitely gross. Although my worst MMA memory is Masvidal knocking out Ben Askren. Oh, I don't know if I'll, I don't. I don't know if I'll ever get over that because I, I, I
0: was. Let it go. <laughs> I, I,
1: I, I still wanted Ben Askren to just you know run the UFC, and he just had to eat it. But it anyway, I'm awesome. over. it. I'm over. Okay.
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I will note before we uh, before we let it rest with Thompson. He actually was supposed to get a rematch. Scott Coker announced that uh, in Bellator there would be a rematch between Slice. And, uh, and Thompson uh, in 2016, but sadly, Kimbo died unexpectedly the month before the event was supposed to happen. Uh, Thompson would end his career in 2017. With, with some big wins on his resume, he beat Dan the B-7, uh, Yoshida, Don Fry, former World's Strongest Man, Marius Pujanowski, and current WWE star Bobby Lashley. Uh, well, that's... So-
1: that's because Lashley didn't have Leo Rush at his oh time. yeah,
0: I'm, I'm, <laughs> or, I'm or sure Lana, Lana for that matter. <laughs> yeah, or Lana. Yeah, or MVP. Or yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So as we like as we do on these uh, these episodes, we want to look at the UFC and Pride events that were going on around this time. Take a look at the world of MMA uh, five days after Triple Thet, A triple threat would take place on December 13th. UFC Fight Night Sanchez versus Riggs uh, took over the MCAS Miramar near uh, San Diego, California. This was the first UFC event to take place on a military base. uh, And as you would expect, the majority of the audience was made up of U.S. Marines that were stationed there. Definitely some some very notable names on the card. Uh, Alan Belcher knocked out future Strike Force fighter George Santiago with a third-round head kick. Uh, the irish hand grenade which is one of my all-time favorite nicknames in mma Uh, Mm -hmm. marcus davis beat mr international shoney carter via unanimous decision josh koschek beat jeff joslin via decision and diego sanchez took out future strike force competitor joe riggs with a ko from knee a knee and punches Uh, and the event drew an overall 1.3 rating for spike tv Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a few weeks after Triple Threat, the aforementioned Shockwave event took place for Pride. It was headlined by a future, uh, I'm sorry, by a title bout between future Strike Force fighter Fedor Emilianenko, uh, one of my all time favorite fighters, if not my all time favorite, uh, and Mark Hunt. Uh, the New Year's Eve event was a huge, huge success. Almost 49,000 people in attendance at the Saitama Super Arena uh, in Japan. And Can I stop
1: let me sorry, I don't mean sure. to interrupt you. But sure. I did not know Fedor was one of your favorite fighters of all time. Oh yeah. Because because he is definitely one of my favorite fighters of all time too, and could be my favorite, but I have to ask you, his his losses, which one hurt you the most?
0: Oh, definitely the Verdun one because I was there. Uh okay. and I was I was uh I was in the media section and i was you i mean man i was i mean it was like almost like being on like feeling honored to uh to be able to watch this legend fight live you know in san jose i mean i was so unbelievably unbelievably excited for that and i'm trying to pretend that i'm a journalist and try to be you know uh try to be neutral and and it just when when I remember the feeling, and we'll you know we'll obviously discuss that card more in in the future, but I remember the feeling of when uh, Verdun got that locked in, and I'm just like you know look, Fedor doesn't lose, you know like he doesn't yeah. lose, so he's gonna get out of this. But just seeing his bald head like turning red, and just I mean you know, and then when he tapped, I mean I just yeah I I remember. Like just kind of looking around, there was just this moment of shock throughout the arena, and uh, yeah. So that th- there's just no question that was the one, and that was the first one that he'd had since that. Uh, I think it was a TKO via cut, which was really questionable to Tsuyoshi, to, uh, excuse me, Tsuyoshi Kosaka. Uh, all those years before that, I think he was like thirty-one and one or something like that, and uh, yeah, that was that was heartbreaking for me. That was that was a really tough one. So yeah.
1: Yeah, that that tap out was it felt like you had just seen your like girlfriend kissing someone else like it, it had that that like sinking gut feeling in you like everything just escaped your body when he tapped out like it was so shocking and, and, and it was so I was depressed the rest of the night and I was in the bil- <laughs> I was in the building that night too I mean it was just oh. like yeah I mean it was that crowd was silent. They could not believe it. But um I think with a Dan Henderson knockout really pissed
0: me off. Yeah, out. that was that but, was pretty brutal too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, anyway. None of his none of his fight none of his losses have made me feel good. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh but anyway, so this was not a loss, uh, which we'll we'll talk about. Uh, on on the card, feature strike force competitor Shinya Aoki uh submitted Joachim Hansen via Gogo Plata. Uh, Shogun Hua got a decision win over Kazuhiro Nakamura, Takanori Gomi, another one of my favorite fighters to watch, uh, mm-hmm. tikio Mits- Mitsuhiro Ishida, Minotaro Nogara beat another Future Strike Force fighter Josh Barnett, and Fedor submitted Hunt uh, in defense of his Pride Heavyweight Championship. Uh, interesting to note, Mirko Krokop was actually supposed to take on Fedor in a rematch of, of one of one of my favorite fights ever, Krokop versus Fedor. Um, they were supposed to rematch in the main event as Krokop had won that year's absolute Grand Prix tournament tournament, uh, but he was injured, unable to compete, so Barnett, um, Josh Barnett was actually mentioned as a potential opponent, but it ended up being Mark Hunt instead. Uh, It's also worth noting that Strikeforce lightweight champion Gilbert Melendez beat Japanese legend Tatsuya Kawajiri on this card, which, you know, seems to explain to me um, why he did not compete at triple threat that, that you know he had gotten this offer to go to Japan or uh, you know we know that Scott Coker had a relationship with uh, the, uh, the the pride executives and so maybe they requested uh, that they get uh, you know Melendez on the card Melendez had fought in Shudo in Japan so maybe they wanted him for this but that seems to seems to explain it but I, I guess I could be wrong on that.
1: I mean, it, it's it probably makes sense. I know I was looking up what happened with Melendez and MMA news. Um, Loretta Hunt actually wrote a story saying that he had reaggravated an elbow injury uh, that um, put him out of this fight. So. I don't know. It might have been one of those things, like they do in wrestling. You know, they he, he, he you have an injury, Gilbert. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and maybe he did have an injury. And it's like, why should I push through and fight when I got a chance to maybe make more money on this other show? You know, in a month a month or so. So, who knows what it was? Yeah. But, um, yeah. All
0: right. Well, we're uh, we're getting up on forty minutes in, and we haven't even gotten to the card yet. So. <laughs> Uh, let's Well, let's Phil, go.
1: Phil, stop talking about wrestling. Let's I know. Talk about the yeah, it's me. Yeah, it's all my fault.
0: <laughs> um, no, we keep going down on all these very interesting side trails. Okay. Uh, all right, so Strikeforce Triple Threat would take place at San Jose's HP Pavilion on December 8, 2006. It drew 8,701 fans. A good showing and, and double what they did at Revenge in Fresno, but but still a far cry uh, from the 18,265 that the promotion drew for the, the initial Shamrock versus Gracie event.
1: Yeah, I don't know why. Um, I mean, 8000 is a good, good crowd. Oh, um, no I doubt. Don't know, no doubt. I don't know. You know, 18000 was they were sort of, um, you know, sort of spoiled with that first show. It, maybe they had a couple of bad matches on this card. I don't know. But, um, you know, they would never get back to that original house. So, uh, yeah, I guess you got to stop looking at I'm I at, at some as, point.
0: We're gonna have to stop mentioning that card because it's yeah. just, you know, the, uh, they never got back to that number. Uh, but I could only find one video or we, we both looked and we could only find video of one of these fights. And that was the, the fight between Gina Carano and Elena Maxwell. Uh, thankfully Ricardo Mendoza, a long MMA reporter who was with MMA weekly at the time, uh, appeared to be at the event, uh, and covered it. And was, I was able to find his live results article. Otherwise we would have just been going off of, you know, records going in and out of the fights and then what the, the actual results were. So we'll be using that for the, uh, the action recaps. All right, so looking at the undercard, uh, we had Raul Castillo. He TKO'd Andrew Montanez uh, via punches at 210 of the first round in a middleweight bout. Uh, Coming into the fight, Castillo was 1-0, while Montanez, nicknamed Strong Island, uh, was 2-5. I guess you can uh, give a little call out to uh, Matt Cardona, the former... um, Oh, man, what was his name in WWE? (laughs) I totally blanked. Uh, Zack Ryder. There we go. Oh, okay. Because he's from Long Island, and I've heard some Strong (laughs) Island mentioned with him, too. Uh, It should be pointed out that Montanez, while having a a very subpar record at, at again, only two and five, he was on a two-fight win streak come into this. Uh, as far as the the, the fight, uh, Castillo got the fight to the ground pretty quickly, uses jiu-jitsu to get Montanez in position to eat strikes, getting the TKO uh, when Montanez, Montanez was was unable to intelligently defend himself, uh, and the ref stops it. Castillo would go on to fight a couple more times in Strikeforce, so we'll discuss him a bit more in the future. Meanwhile, in a what is a... Uh, Kind of sets the tone for this card. He was one and done with Strike Strikeforce. Again, a lot of those guys uh, on this this uh, this card that only fought once for the promotion. Uh, he would go on to retire in 2010 uh, with a nine, 9-13-1 record. Uh, his most notable opponents were Dan Lozon and current rising UFC star Calvin Cutter. Uh, Montanez would lose to both of them. Hmm. All right, in the next bout, we had Anthony Antdog Figueroa. Uh, he got a unanimous decision win over David Barrios in a 130-pound bout. Uh, the aforementioned Figueroa was 1-0 coming into the scrap, while Barrios was 0-1. Here's the irony. They each only had one pro fight, and it was against each other. <laughs> that's, that's right. These two had actually fought the previous month with Ant Dog getting the win uh, in that fight. As for the fight itself, this one, it was an action-packed bout. Both fighters had their moments. Figaro landed a couple of unintentional groin strikes, unfortunately, uh, but Barris was able to recover. He was the fresher fighter at the start of the third round, uh, but Figaro endured and got the unanimous decision nod there. Uh, so he'd go up 2-0 on his opponent. Uh, Figaro would actually fight five more times for Strike, strike Force, so you'll hear his name a uh, few at least a few more times on the podcast uh barrios like andrew Montenez would only compete this one time in strike force and he would retire in 2015 with a five and seven record all right in the next bout we had scott graham get the nod via the unanimous decision over drew diamond league uh i'm i'm, I'm gonna say diamond league i don't know if that's the it's d-i-m-a-n-l-i-g i don't know how to pronounce that exactly but i'm gonna i'm gonna go with diamond league mm-hmm. uh it was a 195 pound catch weight bout Graham is a name that you might recognize as we've mentioned him a couple times on this show. He had fought in the very first Strike Force MMA bout back at Shamrock versus Gracie. Not just the first event, but he was in the very first fight. Mm. Uh, Graham had been busy in 2006. He'd lost to future UFC vet Jared Hammond at Revenge, uh, which put his record at 2 and 1 coming into this show. Drew Diamond League was 3-1 as he entered the cage at triple threat. Uh, so the fight for the fight itself, back and forth a, a affair with, again, both fighters having their moments. Graham got a big slam in the second round, while Diamond League got a, a good takedown in the third. Uh, in the end, Graham got a, a, a unanimous decision with all three judges scoring it all three rounds for him. Uh, this would be it for Graham, not only in Strike Force, but in MMA as well. Uh, the man would, would go on to he would the man that would win the first ever Strike Force MMA bout would end his career at three and one. Uh, and for Diamond League, this would be the start of a career ending slide for him. He would lose two more fights in two thousand seven before retiring with a three and four record. All right. David Smith TKO'd the Hellraiser Sean Bassett with punches at 136 of the third round in a lightweight bout. Uh, David Smith was 1-0 heading into the contest while Bassett was 0-2 having lost to Chris Amarante at Strike Force Revenge via armbar. Uh, it was a, an exciting first round. Both fighters dropped the other with punches. Uh, both got a little more cautious at the beginning of round two, but Smith hurt Bassett once again with strikes. Bassett rebounded with with a takedown and some ground and pound and possibly evening things up heading into the third and final round, but it wouldn't matter as Smith landed a big punch that knocked Bassett down in the final frame, pouring it on before the ref stopped. Uh, the fight, saving a bloodied Bassett from further carnage. Uh, both Smith and Bassett would fight in force a couple more times, including against each other in a rematch, so we'll discuss them a bit more on future you know, I'm episodes. S-
1: I'm sorry I'm so silent here, Phil, but its is it just you or are there a lot of guys here? <laughs> On this card, who we never really heard much from before or after. I mean, they had a little a few fights, but this is an interesting undercard to me. I I, I don't know what they were thinking in terms of this sort of this sort of booking. But I mean, wh- what do you think of this undercard?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't, and that was the end of the undercard, by the way. N- yeah. You know, nothing to write home about. Uh, mostly yeah. inexperienced guys. I mean, Coker has a, a long history of putting local guys on cards, and that's and yeah. that's a. Combat sports staple. I mean, you you do that. You have local guys. Some of them, you know. Again, I, I mentioned Gladiator Gladiator Challenge is a previous uh, client of mine when I was working doing PR and MMA. Uh, you know that fighters literally sell tickets to shows they, they get sure. a certain amount of tickets and would sell those tickets to to um, you know to the event and they would get to keep some of the money and then some of the money would go to the promoter you want local guys who have local fans mm-hmm. and local families and that sort of thing that can again help sell tickets sometimes literally physically telling selling tickets so yeah. you know a lot of these guys are local guys uh, you know they're going to be inexpensive to, I mean UFC still does this Bellator still does this you have guys that aren't going to cost you a lot and you know, they need to get, you know, experience and, and wins under their belts. And so, you know, it's not going to be the most exciting, but that's why they're on the undercard and, and not on the, the main card. So yeah. I, I agree with you, but I, I think it's pretty standard within combat sports for this, this type of approach. Yeah, okay. All right, so now with that, we can jump into the main card. Uh, in the, the first fight of the main card, we saw Rex Richards submit Kyle Levinson with a key lock at 2:02 of the first round in a heavyweight bout. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Rex was a, uh, a a very large man. He played football for the Arena Football League San Jose Sabercats. He was 2-0 heading into the scrap. Uh, Levinton was also a very big dude, 6'8", 290, big dude. Uh, he was 0-1 coming into this fight, and it would be a quick one. Uh, Levinton threw a, a big right hook to start things off. Just barely got a piece of Richard's face, but Richards immediately shot in for a takedown. Uh, the football player got full mount, dropping a few strikes before responding to Levinton's movements and eventually getting a, a very nasty-looking key lock locked in, forcing the uh, forcing the tap out, getting a big win.
1: You know, uh, arena football made me think about Herschel Walker, and I can't wait for us to deconstruct. Uh, his fights and that whole era of him in, in strike force. Cause that, that was so bizarre to me. And I have to admit as, as much as I love Herschel Walker as an athlete, I badly was waiting for somebody to beat him. And then he stopped. Well, I (laughs) mean, I just, he's a great athlete, but you know, I, I really respect the sport and the fighters. And I'm like, how'd this guy get an MMA fight? (laughs) But obviously he's a freak athlete.
0: Yeah. He's probably probably one of the greatest, pure athletes in in sports history i mean just amazing and i'm hoping that we can get him on the uh Get him on the podcast if not we can get one of his trainers on the podcast but we, we will definitely be discussing Herschel walker in the future for sure wow. mm-hmm. uh so richard who would obviously not be the last football player in strike force would fight one more time for strike force uh, in 2007 <laughs> it's 2007 so we'll discuss his remaining career when we get to that event uh Levington would not appear in strike force again and would fight only one more time losing in that bout as well to bring his final record to winless at 0 and three all right, then uh, we had Daniel pewter, former WWE guy uh, on the uh, uh, get a a big rear naked choke win over Mike cook at two thirty one of the second round and a heavyweight back about uh, This would be another step towards building Pewter as a bit of an undercard star uh, for Strike Force. He'd bring his undefeated 3-0 record into the bout with Mike Cook, who was also undefeated. Pewter was coming off a 28-second uh armbar win over Tom Tuggle at Revenge, while Cook had beaten Carlton Jones at Tank versus Buentello with a second round TKO win via punches. As the fight started, uh, very back and forth in the first round with Peter going for a takedown right off the bat. Cook defends it, but Peter eventually gets it. However, Cook's able to work his way into mount somehow before Peter reverses and gets into guard. Cook then reverses again with Pewter going for an arm bar that Cook slams his way out of. Lots of groundwork as the round ends. Uh, Then in the second, Pewter goes again for a a, a takedown early on with Cook defending, but not being able to stop his opponent from getting it. Pewter gets Cook's back using strikes to sink in a rear naked choke, and that's all she wrote. Uh, Cook actually tapped out, um, but the ref didn't see it at first, so it sounds Mm -hmm. like he was out of position. But thankfully, the ref finally did realize uh, what what had happened, and he got, got the fight stopped right before Cook went to sleep.
1: How many pay-per-view buys would a pewter Kurt Angle in the Hexagon fight? Oh, man. Would
0: at that, at that time? At uh, that time, lot. yeah. A lot. I mean, <laughs> a lot. I think it would have done very, very well.
1: Why didn't Kurt ever do it just one time for the money? I mean, he had... I mean, you talk about CM Punk. We don't even know how much money he made. But, I mean, Angle was a legit dude yeah Um, he talked you know
0: i i think i can answer that he he (laughs) talked about it i mean he had a he had a relationship with dana white Uh, i know that they had discussions um you know i i i think he looked into it but he was just so beat up and his you know his pain pill addictions and and you know he's had issues with alcohol that he's thankfully overcome and all that stuff Uh, he just was i mean come on he won the he won the olympic gold medal with a broken freaking neck and you know (laughs) it had dealt with All the injuries that had come from being a pro wrestler and all, he's just too beat up. I mean, if if MMA, I mean, to be fair, you know, we say if MMA had been a big thing in the mid-90s, maybe he would have done I mean, when he won the, the Olympic gold medal, that was 96. UFC had been around for a few years at that point. Some guys that he wrestled with had been, you know, had gotten into MMA, but it wasn't the you know, the money maker, obviously, that it is now. Um, I still think at WWE, I think you're going to make more money in the long run than you are in MMA just because you compete more, or I compete, but you perform more often. Hmm. But, yeah, I, I think Kurt, I would have been, man, I would have paid money to see Kurt in MMA. I would have loved to have seen that. But, yeah, I just I just don't think his body could, could handle it, and, you know, he probably knew that.
1: I would get Angle and Pewter in Saudi Arabia right now. I mean, just, just, Let history. it go with
0: Saudi Arabia.
1: No, Let no, but that's, that's, that's the perfect venue to get the dream matches that should have happened, you know, a long time ago. Yeah, but the, I, car, I would the, say
0: the the, the dream <laughs> matches that are car crash, you know, can't look away, you know, matches now, like the abomination that was uh, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and Kane. Oh, but yeah. I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm i seeing a moonsault backwards bald oh, head God. hitting the ground. Okay. But no, I, would, I didn't want to say I looked up Pewter um, a little bit, just trying to figure out what was going on with this fight and uh it's really odd his wikipedia page says six foot three and then in parentheses same as brock lesnar which i think is just hilarious you know like it actually
0: says same as brock lesnar on the wikipedia page
1: go go look it up right now it says (laughs) daniel pewter six foot three same as Brock Lesnar. So I don't know if Pewter is doing his own Wikipedia page or somebody <laughs> went in there and messed that up. But um, first of all, I don't think Daniel Pewter is 6'3", but maybe he is. But um, I just think it's funny. He's that, a big
0: boy. He's a yeah. big boy. He very well could be. Yeah. But so, <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> All right. All right, well, Pewter, he'd go to 4-0. Um, really appeared primed to take a big step up in competition for his next fight. It, it would not happen, and we'll discuss that in a future episode as, as the former WWE talent would fight one more time in strike Strikeforce. Uh, Cook would also fight one more time, though it wouldn't be for a few years. Uh, never, nevertheless, we'll you know, kind of wrap up his career on a future episode. Uh, I will note that that Cook would go on a, a solid winning streak after this bout, winning four in a row. Hmm. All right, in the next fight, moving from the main event of the previous card to you know simply one of the main card fights, Paul the head the headhunter Paul Bontello got a corner stoppage victory over Ruben Wardpath Villarreal at 3:57 of the second round in a heavyweight bout. Uh, coming into the fight, the the headhunter head was of course coming off a big win over Tank Abbott at the previous Strikeforce event. Uh, despite his UFC title fight loss to Andre Arlovsky, Bontello had won eight of his last nine fights, so he was definitely on an upward trend, uh, and he would be taking on a, a the epitome me, the, the walking definition of a journeyman uh, in Warpath Villarreal, uh, the Native American, had made his MMA debut in 2003. Been a very and very active and busy fighter. Uh, in fact, in 2004, he fought nine times. Seriously, oh my. nine wow. times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 2006 had also been <laughs> almost as busy with Warpath fa- war fighting eight times. Uh, so he, he was actually coming off. Uh, a, a win against nasty Wade Hamilton just a couple weeks before this bout with Buentello. Uh, and, and Villarreal, I mean, he, you know, not not the greatest fighter, but he had some really fought some really big names, including Dan Severn, Travis View, Rico Rodriguez, former UFC champion, uh, Bigfoot Silva, Don Fry, and Boss Rutten. And And while he'd gone winless against all of them, uh, he did get a draw against against the predator Don Fry, so we'll mention mm-hmm. that. Uh, and also, we've mentioned Warpath before because he was actually scheduled to fight uh, Cabbage Carrera at Tank versus Bunt- Buntello, but that fell through when Cabbage got injured.
1: Cabbage, but, one of your favorite fighters. Yeah, one
0: of my yeah. one of my favorites for his style, not for you know his <laughs> character or. You know that sort of thing. But, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: uh, anyway, so in the first round, the headhunter lived up to his nickname. He landed some really solid punches to Warpath's dome, uh, though they didn't seem to phase the big Native American. Regardless, Buintello was 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 landing, and and he was you know scoring some points there. Uh, so you know, nice job on his part. Uh, in the second round, the uh, the crowd got started to get a little bit restless as the two heavyweights didn't really engage much early on. But that would change, and Buontello would land a nice flurry of stri- strikes, uh, really really pouring it on before referee heard. Dean stepped in to stop the fight. Uh, it, it appeared that it was a corner stoppage, though, um, because uh, it was, I, I don't know if the, they threw in the towel or whatever, but that's how it's officially recorded. Maybe Herb Dean missed a towel being thrown in or them yelling to stop the fight. But but, anyways, it ended things late uh, in the second round with Buentillo getting his hand raised. Mm. Uh, Buentillo would fight twice more in Strikeforce, including against Alistair Overeem for the promotion's heavyweight belt, so we'll discuss him more uh, at length down the line. As with several others on this card, as we've mentioned, Warpath would only fight uh, once in Strike Force. He would fight a multitude of times after this event, ending his career in 2013 with a 22, 28, and 3 record. Uh, He did get big wins over Don Fry. He did eventually beat him, and he beat Tank Abbott after this bout. Uh, And ironically, he would actually fight Mike Cook, the guy uh, that fought in the the match right before this. He would actually fight him three times after this card uh, and lost two of them. So, uh, you know, interesting, interesting how you see fighters uh, pa- uh cross paths with others i mentioned that he beat tank Abbott. there's actually a picture of tank backing him up cornering uh warpath in a in a fight so kind of kind of interesting how you how you see all that go down wow uh- all right. In the next round, uh, the next fight, Eugene Jackson submitted Ronald the Machine Gun Jun at 2:01 of the first round. Quick fight. Uh, it was about for the vacant strike force U.S. middleweight title, which we're going to discuss in just just a second. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but these two had actually locked up before, back in 2008 at a superball super brawl super event in Hawaii. Uh, it was Jun's first fight. Jackson would get the submission win via forearm choke. I don't even really know what that looks like. Uh, you don't see or hear about a lot of those. Uh, in MMA, but, uh, regardless, fast forward to triple threat and both these competitors were a lot more experienced with each having fought in the UFC. Uh, John was 23, 19 and two coming into this contest and was on a six fight losing streak, uh, which included defeats. Uh, you gotta say, you know, you gotta give him, uh, you know, kind of put this in context, yeah, he'd lost six fights in a row, but he'd lost to Jay Hiron, Talis Litis, Frank Trigg, and Antonio McKee, and two, also two very capable Japanese competitors. Uh, Jackson, for his part, was coming off a TKO win over Mike Seal at Shamrock versus Gracie.
1: I have I- to say, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about Super Brawl, even though that was the name of the event in Hawaii. And maybe, maybe the forearm chokes, just like a Randy Orton, choke yeah you know, I, it's a, it's a side, just a headlock maybe you know,
0: I, I don't know i will mention though super brawl was it was a very important promotion that you know a lot of guys bj penn uh anderson silva i believe i mean there was a mm-hmm. lot of guys that fought in hawaii uh for that for, i believe for that promotion and there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of footage out there but there there was some very important fighters that came through uh came through super brawl so i'm i'm just don't
1: no, I'm just doing my Super Bowl WCW paper. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, a different, the early that's 90s. a different story. I that's think, all. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know. Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, but as I mentioned, this this bout would be contested for the vacant Strikeforce U.S. middleweight title, uh, while the jo- Josh Thompson Nam Fan uh, fight would be for the Force U.S. lightweight title. This really struck me as weird. Why do we have U.S. titles? I, I, I mean, that's a kickboxing thing. I mean, they, they, yeah. they definitely have U.S. Kickboxing is like boxing in that there are just way too many titles. And, you know, you have junior welterweight and super welterweight and feathered lightweight and whatever. And then you've got, you know, the champions of the British Commonwealth and the U.K. champion. And then, you know, the world champion. And then, of course, U.S. champions and North. North. I mean, so I, I, I'm guessing Coker got this from his his kickboxing background but these these titles would be contested on this card and then never really seen from or or you know seen or or heard from again i i don't like this i don't like having too many belts i i don't really get it and you know again you got a guy that's on a six fight losing streak that's fighting for a belt like i just it just devalues it from the very beginning i so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but not something I'm really a fan of.
1: It's just surprising Um, when you mentioned that it's a kickboxing thing, then that makes sense that Scott Coker would think of doing that. Obviously it's a way to bring a little more prestige to a match by calling it a title match. But I mean, U S title, I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it's a weird sort of thing to do. Um, Especially when it's, it's a promotion that's building itself. Right. So even the world titles right now, you know, they're still developing their brand. So having sort of a secondary title is odd as well. So I agree with you there.
0: Yeah, it just didn't didn't really make a lot of sense. And, you know, look, I understand back in the days before TV was really prevalent, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, the wrestling territories and, and certain territories would have certain championships. And, you know, you had the Missouri champion and, you know, the whatever, the uh yeah you had all these like regional titles and i get that but this is supposed to be you know we're talking about if you're going to be a national promotion Hmm. okay have a california you know champion if you want to go that route but it's a u.s title it just it just didn't make any sense so i yeah i'm not not a big fan of that uh maybe we'll ask cooker about that in the future
1: barry Wyndham, he was once the western state's Heritage
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> in the NWA. Yeah, and I, I, I I love there, there. There's a there's a hotel between Santa Barbara and San Jose on um, on the 101. I think it's by King City, and it's got a name very similar to that. And I can't drive by without thinking about that. But I mean, look what the UFC did with the BMF. Uh,
0: yeah, um, just kind of I mean, creating titles. That's,
1: that that was stupid.
0: Yeah. I mean it's
1: it's brandy. That's all it is. Yeah. I think Coker was really just trying to do something here that was uh, tied to tied to kickboxing
0: I yeah he was, was he was dumb, trying yeah. things out you know yeah. I, I get that i, I will mention a, a quick note you can tell that you're from southern california i'm from northern california because you <laughs> said the 101 which everybody right. in the bay area say hey i'm taking 101 south or i'm taking 101 north oh, okay. like we never we never say the that's a socal thing for sure <laughs> so yeah anyways all right Uh, So again, jump into the action. This would be a quick one. Jackson landed a big stream of strikes that dropped his Hawaiian opponent. Uh, Jackson would would drop some strikes from full mount that Jun defended well, but the machine gun ends up giving up... uh, uh, I don't even know how I, How did I say that the machine gun ends up there we go the machine gun ends <laughs> up giving up his back allowing Jackson to secure a rear naked choke victory at just over two minutes of the first round so a quick one uh, the new newly minted champion uh, Eugene Jackson he'd fight one more time in Strike Force, not defending this very much defunct title uh, against uh, Joe Riggs <laughs> the next year so we'll discuss him more then uh, and you can also add the machine gun Ronald Jun uh, to the list of one and done strike force fighters on this card he would continue Fighting until 2013, ending his career with a record of 25, 26, and 2. And by the way, it would drive me insane if I had a 25 and 26 record. I would want one, I, I got to get one more win to get to 500 if I'm that close <laughs> and I have that many fights. That would drive me insane. <laughs> All right. Dwayne Bang Ludwig uh, beat Tony the Freak Frickland with a TKO via knee at 337 of the second round in a welterweight bout. Bang was coming off a very tough submission loss to Josh Thompson at revenge. Uh, in fact, he had lost both of his bouts for the promotion, so Ludwig was was very hungry to right the ship and get a win in strike Strikeforce. Uh, Frickland, as mentioned earlier, was also coming off a off loss, but he had won his three bouts before that. Ludwig was 13 and 6, and Frickland was 14 and 7. As the bell rang to start this bout, this would uh, be a very much a, an all-action bout, very very entertaining. Both fighters uh, would come out swinging in the opening frame. With Ludwig, a world-class kickboxer, getting the the better of his opponent. Frickland was gang though, game though, and and he did get hurt several times in the first round, but he kept coming. Uh, after taking some effective shots from Ludwig, the freak finally went for a takedown towards the end of the first round, but Bang was able to defend that. In the second round, Ludwig turns up the volume on his strikes, landing some big ones. Uh, Fricklin gets dropped after eating a big head kick, and Bang gets positioned on the canvas and unleashes some lethal ground and pound. Fricklin survives somehow and manages to get back to his feet, which is crazy. Uh, shows his toughness, but Ludwig drops him again, and this time finishes the Freak with strikes, and that's it. Uh, both fighters would complete. or am sorry, compete in Strikeforce again in 2007, the following year, actually on the same card. So we'll be discussing them both a, a bit more down the line. Uh, and Bang has agreed to come on the podcast, so we're, we're hoping to have him on at some point. I did want to mention I came across a. Uh, an interview with, with Bang after this uh, card with a a, a, a a publication. I said he made a point of saying how great he felt at 170 pounds, and not having to cut very much weight. Uh, and he was really, really happy to get some redemption in a Strike Force cage. I'm sure this being, uh, you know, it's Christmas time, it was a couple of weeks before Christmas. I'm sure it made for a really happy holiday season at the. Uh, uh, the Ludwig household. <laughs> All right, so we get into the uh, the light heavyweight title fight, Bobby Southworth versus Vernon the Tiger White. Uh, Southworth gets the nod via unanimous decision in a five-round fight for that title. It's worth mentioning as we head into this bout that Southworth was officially six and four uh, you got to remember the Ultimate Fighter shows; uh, those the bouts that take place on the show itself during the reality series um, are not counted as official fights. They're counted as exhibition fights, so yeah. they don't count uh, according to Southworth's record. So he was six and four, while White was twenty-four, twenty-eight, and two. So obviously a massive difference in experience levels. I, I gotta wonder if the CSAC had you know considered that as part of the, their licensing in this bout. Although as we mentioned, Frank Shamrock um, <laughs> took on. The Phantom 14-0 record <laughs> of, of Caesar Gracie on the first event, so maybe the c didn't care that much. Uh, regardless, as mentioned earlier, Southworth was coming off the unfortunate no-contest bout with James the Sandman Irvin, uh, while White had lost two straight, including one to Leota Meshida on the same card that Warpath Villarreal had lost to Tabas Ruten. Uh, but this bout, would it would go a full five rounds. Uh, the first round saw Southworth get a takedown, m- not much really to it. The crowd got restless towards the end of the first five minutes. Uh, in round two, we saw an uptick in action with Southworth again getting the better of his more experienced opponent. Uh, in the third, Southworth does land a good punch, but again, he's not really able to do much with it. He's controlling the fight, though, especially on the ground more boos in the 4th and 5th round as Southworth gets mm-hmm. takedowns but isn't able to capitalize on them and that's pretty much how the fight went not not exactly a barn burner so you know Coker took a risk in booking these guys for this fight, and and you know, it didn't really seem to pay off. Um, the big news coming out of the bout is that Strikeforce has its first ever light heavyweight champion and Bobby Southworth. Uh, he would not compete again for the promotion for nine months, though he would fight four more times inside the hexagon. Uh, you'll hear more, as I mentioned, from Bobby next week, as we will. He will be the uh, the interview subject on that episode, which I'm looking forward to. That. Uh, white for his part would compete six more times in mma going two and four though never again in strike force he would retire in two thousand and ten with a twenty six 33 and two record
1: now that's quite quite the record for sure 26 and 33 you know but um you mentioned the the light heavyweight title and like it's interesting because that title would change hands quite often it would go to uh, Southworth to lose to Hinato Sabral, and then he would lose to Gegard Musasi, and then Wissasi would lose to King Mo, and then uh, Fajal, Rafael Fajal Calvocante would knock out... Uh, King Mo, and then of course Dan Henderson would uh, knock out Feijao, and so he became the final force light heavyweight uh, champion. And we're going to talk about this down the road, but I just got to say right now that um, you know I used to really love Gagar Mousasi just because I liked his style. He was sort of like a an assassin. He reminded me of, for the boxing fans listening, a Donald Curry sort of welterweight. Uh, they called him Donald the Cobra Curry. Uh, he was just like this really good striker. And uh, Gegard for me was that way too, but King Mo—I'm sure you saw this fight. <laughs> I mean, King Mo just took him down at will over and over and over, and uh, took his title.
0: I and, actually uh, don't—I don't remember that fight actually. So, just to be yeah, honest. I'll have, to, yeah, no. I'll have to refresh my memory on that. Well, it was classic
1: Musasi, just being super arrogant and thinking that there's no way. In his mind, the one-dimensional King Mo was going to be able to stand with all of his, you know, offense, and uh, he he Gegard had zero takedown defense. But um, that light heavyweight title would be, you know, really exciting to watch that, you know, as it would go because it kept changing hands over and over.
0: Yeah, definitely a hot potato situation. Very different yeah. from the the lightweight title with basically two guys holding it. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, all right. Well, let's move on to the next fight. We're finally arrived at the uh, Gina Carano elena Maxwell fight. This would be a unanimous decision win in a 150 pound bout. Uh, as mentioned earlier, this would be the first women's bout in Strikeforce history. Both fighters were undefeated uh, coming into this contest, but definitely getting the the superstar treatment for this for this match.
1: Yeah, we got Jimmy Lennon Jr. back doing the announcing uh, for this show. And uh, just again, you just hear that voice. You think it's, wow, this is a big deal. <laughs> JLJ
0: back in the house. Nice. <laughs> uh, well, as, as I mentioned earlier, there actually was video of this fight with German commentary <laughs> over it, which, uh, which is interesting. I, I-
1: i found a japanese commentary oh okay all right (laughs) awesome um
0: i wish i could my mom was born in germany she was adopted as a a baby so you know didn't know any german but i did actually take two years or three years of german in high school failed Mm -hmm. all two or three years so I, i i did not recognize uh, any words said other than the, the fighters names uh, but but anyways uh, in the first round I also want to mention these were actually two minute rounds only so these were very very fast rounds uh, which I actually in the end I, I mean both fighters look very tired at the end but um, I actually kind of think it hurt the fight a little bit because, especially at the very end, because I think Carano was in danger of, of, well, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so both fighters uh, looked really good. Uh, Carano was really the aggressor, especially in the first round. Neither fighter landed anything significant, uh, but Maxwell did get a takedown towards the end of the round, but Carano was able to reverse position and get in, in Maxwell's half guard, but but definitely a good opening opening uh, frame for this bout.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of uh, Carano stalking. Uh for much of the fight at least in the first round stalking trying to kick trying to punch following her she was clearly the aggressor I mean you could tell just based on confidence that she she had the edge going on early in this fight
0: yeah for sure and you could you just I don't know if it was confidence or what or just talent level but yeah yeah uh, in the second round, Maxwell gets a takedown early on, which, once again, Carano was able to reverse and get top position. Maxwell's able to tie Carano up for the most part, so Carano doesn't uh, do a lot of damage. But she once she jumps out of guard, she does land some kicks. Uh, and, and, you know, definitely a round one by Carano. Uh Towards the end of the round, both women got to let their hands go a little bit. Definitely an exciting round. Uh, In the third and final uh, frame, Carano landed a good right hand early on, uh, then got a nice trip takedown. Maxwell went for a triangle. This was definitely the the sequence of the fight. Maxwell uh, goes for this triangle from underneath, and then she uses it to roll kind of under and reverse position and ends up in top mount with Carano's head and arm like stuck between her legs in the in the triangle position, and she starts landing some some shots, uh, yeah. but Kurano is able to escape. But it was a really cool sequence. I really enjoyed that. Kurano uh, is able to uh, escape, and then she actually gets full mount herself. And uh, the crowd is just loving the action. Over you can hear them over the uh, the German <laughs> commentators. You can hear the. Yeah, sure. The crowd, Uh, and then on top of it was also distracting because you could hear Frank Shamrock and I assume Brian Weber doing commentary, American commentary, and then these two German gentlemen had, you know, decided to to do their own commentary over on top of that. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, this was a little little distracting. But through all of that noise, I could hear the crowd, uh, you know, just really, really enjoying. You know, you could see people on their feet, and it was, you know, definitely, uh, you know, not exactly a technical masterpiece, but a really, really exciting fight. Uh, in the end, Maxwell is able to avoid uh, the strikes enough to survive, and and you know it ends with Corano still dropping bombs from mount. Uh, as soon as the reps stopped the fight, uh, you know which you know stopped it because the final bell had gone. Uh, Corano and Maxwell immediately embrace on the canvas. They, they you know must have realized the importance of this moment in uh, in women's MMA, and you know they definitely made the most of it.
1: Yeah, I already talked about this, but, you know, Karana was is rising star. Uh, she was the one being pushed and, uh, she, definitely paved the way for other female fighters going ahead yeah. and, uh, and we, you know she didn't have you know rousey had that arm bar too like it, it, she was just tapping girls out with that arm bar in seconds and uh chrono was like a solid fighter but she didn't really have that like explosive thing and um but you know we never really knew what would happen with her too she stopped fighting after the cyborg fight because she had definitely a bunch of movie options as well yep. so and she's still doing just,
0: very very well for herself
1: yeah, you know, and I remember, do you remember this, like, a few years ago? Um, well, I should say not a few years ago, but there was a moment where they announced that Gina Carano was going to fight again. Yep. And then it just disappeared. Like, it just yeah, never came I, I up. Yeah, I want
0: to say it was 2014 or 15. Okay. I want to say it yeah. was a, a few years ago. But, yeah, I do remember that because I, you know, I was there for uh, for Cyborg uh, Carano. I was there that. I don't, right. Were you there for that fight? I was
1: not. No, I, I, I saw it on TV, but no, I was not. Okay.
0: There yeah, I was there. It was it was electric. It was ten days after my birthday, and it was the like almost exactly a month before I got married. And uh, very very exciting fight. It was it was very exciting. It was I wanted Krano to win. Um, I think she's Greek, if I remember correctly, and I'm Greek too. So I you know mm. kind of kind of pulling for her based on that. But uh, you know this regardless. Is-
1: Oh, sorry. I, the one thing about Gina Carano too, she wore a full shirt. Did you notice Yes.
0: That? Yep. Yep. Always. And I noticed that I noticed in this fight, Maxwell had kind of like a, I don't know, like a women's tank top on kind of yeah. type thing. And I, I remember seeing her walk to her court. I'm like, uh, I don't know if I would go that route, <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> you know, might get a different kind of show. Um, but but regardless very entertaining fight both competitors quitted themselves well and you know say women's mma was on the map in the u.s uh carano Mm -hmm. interestingly would move to elite xc after this fight she did not say Mm -hmm. it was strike force and uh she would win four straight fights there before returning to strike force for that aforementioned chris cyborg uh event which was the first major women's main event in north american mma history i mean you know obviously was was huge and Again, we'll discuss that more in depth in a future episode. Uh, Maxwell would also return to the Hexagon. She fought in Strikeforce the year after this uh, in 2007, so we'll discuss her more in the future as well. Mm-hmm. All right, Josh Thompson beat Namphon via via uh, unanimous decision for the vacant Strikeforce U.S. Lightweight Championship. Uh, again, very questionable why we've got U.S. belts going on, but we'll just kind of let that go. Uh Thompson was 11-2 and two coming into this fight, having just beat Dwayne Bang Ludwig via guillotine at revenge in a very, very entertaining fight where Thompson definitely came out looking really good. Uh, Fan was also on a big win streak. He'd won seven straight fights. Uh, he was 12-2. and two. Uh, Thompson, you know, 11-2, 12-2 so, I mean, pretty much even records uh, and Fan, Fan was feeling really good about his chances for this fight. I, I read an interview with him that he gave to MMA Weekly the week of the fight. He was really confident. In fact, he, he really he made it sound like Thompson was being set up as a name for him to topple and get some name recognition <laughs> so, uh, you know, unfortunately for him, it didn't quite work out that way but uh, but yeah, this was this was going to be an exciting fight.
1: Well, before we go into the, the summary I looked into... Um... A little bit of research here, and Figure Four Weekly, which is one of the newsletters under the Wrestling Observer that Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez do, um, they said that Josh Thompson got suspended after this fight because he came to the cage with a T-shirt that that said Frank Glamrock is my bitch um and that the California State Athletic Commission suspended him after this show which is huh. interesting which might make sense as to why he didn't uh defend that title I don't I don't know but um it, and then I looked it up it was in sure Dog as well that this happened now I do remember Frank Shamrock talking a lot of uh, smack about Josh Thompson um I don't know what who started it who did it first but uh, definitely shamrock would make very, uh, offensive slurs directed at Josh Thompson. And, uh, I know they had a verbal feud going on, but, um, yeah. So I don't know if you knew about that, but that, I know I, I tried to look for a photo of this t-shirt. But <laughs> I couldn't
0: find one. <laughs> well, when we have Josh on the show, we'll, we'll ask him about it. I honestly, I didn't even, if I did know that they had a feud, I don't remember that. So that's, that's interesting. I mean, two very different weight classes. I mean, Josh fighting at yeah. 50, 155. Shamrock could do 185, but you know would kind of go back and forth between 85 and 205. Um, mm-hmm. Although he was really more of an 85 guy for sure. But you know you're talking two weight classes of difference here, so they're obviously not going to fight each other. Right. So, uh, which is probably why I hate those types of feuds because it's like we can't see a uh, we can't see a conclusion to it because you're not going to actually get in there and fight. It's like it's like in pro wrestling, it like having a feud with a ref. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it just uh, doesn't make any sense because the ref is not going to wrestle you. So why, why you know, why waste time on feuds that are not going to go anywhere? And that, you know, so I, I'm just saying this off of my head. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not, not really a big fan of that. But, you know, we'll I delve into they, it at, at some point. They had a
1: personal thing. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously escalated. it was a personal thing. I mean, they're both from yeah. the area and all that stuff. Yeah. But,
0: yeah, yeah I'm, I'm surprised yeah. to hear that. I was not. I was definitely not aware of that. Yeah. All right, well, uh, for this fight, let's get into the action. Thompson showed off his superior striking skills in the first round, landing some really solid shots before getting a takedown. Uh, The two competitors played the ground game with both exhibiting good jiu-jitsu as the round came to an end. Uh, In the second round, we saw Fan coming out aggressively striking, but he paid for it when the punk caught him with a straight right. Uh, Thompson goes for a guillotine, but Fan is able to escape and get back to his feet before getting Thompson's back. Thompson reverses course and gets back to his feet. More striking uh, with Thompson getting the better of the exchanges, but Fan landing some, some really solid punches of his own as the round ends. Uh, in the third round, the frenetic pace continues. Uh, both fighters were, were fight were, were getting tired, uh, but regardless, Thompson lands some really solid body kicks, including one that drops Fan. The Punk gets mount, drops some big bombs at the end of the fight, which ends in a unanimous decision victory uh, for the hometown favorite. So definitely big another big win, puts another another win on his resume. Uh, Fan would fight one more time in Strike Force, so we'll discuss him more in the future. But I will say, you got to give it to him. Uh, he carved out a really long run in the UFC, starting with his appearance on the Ultimate Fighter, season 12 Uh, outside of his his exhibition bouts on that show he would compete in the in the ufc's octagon eight times so very respectable uh, career thompson of course was in the midst of establishing himself as one of the cornerstones of strike force interestingly despite this being uh, his third straight win in the the hexagon it would be another year and a half before he would finally get another shot at the strike force lightweight title which of course uh, we will discuss on a future episode
1: And I've said this before about Thompson, but, I mean, I think he's definitely one of the most underrated, lightweights of all time. Great fighter. And I finally figured out he fights fearless. Like, he actually fights like like he's just goofing off, you know, messing around with anybody who wants to take him on in the backyard. He's obviously very skilled, but he's just fearless. He just, like, fights like he's just natural. And I think that's what sort of made him. uh, I don't think I ever saw a fight with him where he was stiff or like cautious or nervous. He just, he just fought. uh, He always went for it. Absolutely. He knocked out Nate Diaz, which, you know, even Conor McGregor never did.
0: Yeah. yeah, No, no question. All right. Well, we are to the, I guess the official main event. I mean, again, this is a a difference in Coker um, that, you know, he's not always going to put the title on last. Uh, Of course, he would have three different titles to choose from on this card, but, Uh, We get the local favorite, Kung Lee, in the main event against Livewire, Jason Von Flew. Uh, Lee gets the TKO via cut at 43 seconds of the first round. Uh, Of course, both Kung and Von Flew were coming off big wins in Strikeforce with Lee beating... Uh, Brian Warren at Revenge to get his second MMA win and Livewire besting Eric Ray at Tank versus Bontello to move his record to 12-6-1. The Vietnamese star had to be feeling the pressure as this was a main event fight in his adopted hometown against a much more experienced UFC vet in Jason Von flew Ultimately, uh, this main event would be the shortest fight on the card. Uh, Lee would uh, would come out aggressive with kicks. Von Flew drops to his back on the mat looking to bring the fight to the ground but the ref steps in as Livewire had a large cut over his eye caused by one of the kicks. Uh, there's actually a picture out there I, I'm going to post it uh, on Inside the Hexagon pod on Twitter and uh, and, and Instagram this week uh, but Kung Lee uh, was you can, in the picture you can see him looking at Von Flew's blood on his chest and his arm right after landing the kick that caused the cut. So I I think it it Mm. must have started bleeding pretty badly pretty quickly. Uh, Anyway, the doctor takes a look, says the cut's too severe and that's the end of the fight. Uh, Anticlimactic ending, unfortunately, uh, and not the way that you want to end, especially after some some very entertaining fights. Uh, This is... Probably the second straight event where you know you probably would want to have Josh Thompson in the main event because he put on such a good, such a good fight. And but you know, of course, 2020's hind, hindsight is 2020. So you know, mm-hmm. what, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kung, like Thompson, would go on to be be a big name for Strike Force. He's agreed to come on the podcast in the future, so you know we look forward to having him on. Uh, and we'll of course be discussing him a lot on the show. Von Flew would fight one more time for the promotion in 2007. So uh, we'll wrap things up on him and his career. On that episode, but, but that is triple threat. I mean, that is, that is what happened there. Uh, You know, hard to really hard to judge the card since we don't have, you know, video on any of the fights other than Corano Maxwell. Uh, But just based on the, you know, the, the recaps, it did seem to be an entertaining event outside of the Southworth white fight. So uh, Josh, any, any thoughts?
1: Well, it had some good names. I mean we have Kung Lee and we have Josh Thompson and we have guys who are building the brand of <clears throat> the UFC. We have the Gina Carano fight, which is the debut of women's MMA, so it's definitely very significant. Um the fact that the main event ended so early was a letdown. Obviously, when you are paying money to watch the show live, you want a great fight in the main event, or you want a quick, uh, an amazing knockout, or something like that. So or submission. So, I, I figure four weekly said that the fans were booing. They were to use their word irate at the stoppage, uh, because um, they wanted to see more of of Kung Lee, but it's just how it is you're gonna have that come up where you're gonna have uh, you know it's a real fight and you just don't know how they're gonna end all the time so I mean unless you're Seth Pet- Petricelli and Kimbo slice <laughs> they don't get any direction on what to do in the main yeah event.
0: <laughs> yeah so. um. All right. Well, yeah, it, you know, uh, it, it is what it is. It seemed like a, an entertaining event, you know, got a good crowd and sets them up for their, their next event. Uh, looking ahead, we'll be interviewing Bobby Southworth for next week's episode. Uh, so I'm excited about that. We'll discuss his formative years, how he got into MMA, his relationship with American kickboxing Academy, uh, his time on the ultimate fighter, uh, and in the UFC winning the strike force lightweight title and a lot more. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be great. Um, we've got some other, you know, of course, other events that are uh, that we'll be covering you know coming up soon uh, i will mention kind of one of the one of the frustrating things about um some of these early strike force events is that we don't have uh, fight video for them um we're relying on basically uh, UFC Fight Pass, and then if we can find stuff on, you know, just by Googling it or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, there's going to be some more, uh, episodes coming up where we do not have the, the fight video, at least on Fight Pass. I, some of them I haven't looked up on, you know, I haven't tried to Google them yet, but, uh, but yeah unfortunately it's just kind of the way it goes but the next fight event that we're going to be covering is an, a really exciting one uh, shamrock versus baroni uh, the first fight uh, or the first event that uh, where strike force had partnered with elite XC uh, we're actually going to be having longtime MMA journalist John Nash on uh, to discuss the the partnership with elite XC and, and eventually strike force uh, being able to acquire elite Xc's access, uh, assets including some very very important fighters such as Nick Diaz uh, and Robbie Long and we'll be discussing that more uh, on future episodes. But uh, you know we've got the first of the Playboy Mansion fights. After that, uh, you know we've got mm-hmm. some you know, the four man one night tournament. We we got some really exciting stuff coming up. Uh, so make sure you stay tuned and, and, and you know keep uh, keep downloading wherever you get your your podcast. Make sure you check out InsideTheHexagon.com. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at InsideTheHexagonPod connect with us, follow us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you want to reach me, you can reach me at phil at inside uh, You can actually reach either one of us at that email and, and we'll be happy to respond. But uh, we appreciate your time, Josh. I appreciate your time. It was good, good connecting, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes. We, this is the first time we've been able to record in a while, uh, but it, it was good to reconnect with you. Always enjoy talking with you and uh, look forward to doing more of this in the future.
1: Yeah, and the next show is going to be awesome uh, with uh, Baroni and uh, Shamrock. So we're going to have a lot to talk about there. And, yeah. Uh... Again, always uh, you're the man of extensive research and it uh, shows. And I know everybody listening really appreciates it. So always a pleasure.
0: It takes hours. It, I it really, I mean, I had, uh, I texted you before we recorded. It. I had 17 yeah. pages of notes for this event, which is just insane. Yeah. Uh, but, anyways, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to Shamrock versus Baroni. Mean, Shamrock versus Baroni is one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite Strike Force fights for sure. It was just such an entertaining bout. And you got two pro wrestling level talkers in shamrock and and phil baroni and and so i'm i'm looking forward to that i think that one's going to be uh i think that's going to be a lot of fun uh so we will uh we'll discuss that more as we get closer but in the meantime i appreciate your time josh we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset fans thank you for tuning in uh and we uh we will see you on the see you on the flip side
1: see ya